0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. We all long for success, do we not? I mean, I, I can't think of one time where someone asked to speak with me and said, Rick, can I talk with you? i got this problem. Um, I would really like to be a failure. Could you help me with that? I mean, you do, get, you, do, <laughs> you do get some crazy things from time to time, but I've never had that one, nor have I heard of that one. I guess never say never, but um, we all long for success. I mean, if we desire to be a failure, something's wrong, it, and there's a, a big difference between how the world looks at success and how the believer should look at success. I mean, the, believer, the, the, the world looks at success in monetary ways and status, and et cetera, et cetera. But what does success look like for a believer? Well, we desire to have victory over sin, I hope. I mean, we desire to be patient. Uh, we want patience with difficult people. We desire to make progress and growth in Christ's likeness. We desire endurance and the storms of life that come our way, or contentment in difficult circumstances. We desire that. How do we how do we achieve how do we achieve that? How do we overcome these things? Well, we look to our text this morning and our text has answers to that question. We'll begin reading this morning with verse 22, Genesis 49, verse 22, and read through verse 26. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do come to you this morning. We look to you, Father, collectively that you would be pleased to instruct us and teach us from your word. With this prayer, Father, we are confessing that we need your strength, we need your insight, we need your instruction. We need you, O Holy Spirit, to work in our hearts and our lives and our minds, opening up the truths of your word, giving us hearts that embrace those truths, strengthening our faith, strengthening our confidence. Father, we look to you, and we look to you in great anticipation that it will be your pleasure to do these things for us. For, O oh, Father, we know that it is the Holy Spirit's good pleasure to glorify Jesus and to teach your children. So, O oh, Father... We thank you in advance, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we begin diving into uh, this word, we should say a word about the about the context and um, what what is the context. I suppose I've been over it enough times that uh, probably many of you could probably stand up and give us the context, and I'm not asking anybody to do that. But um, it's good, you know we we. There's three things that are important when we're trying to interpret Scripture, and you know them very well because I repeat them often. Context, context, and the third would be context, right? Uh, and the context, of course, is the deathbed of Jacob. Jacob is in his last hours he's of his life, and he has called his sons together. And if you go back and look at verse 1 of chapter 49, there you see he calls his sons. He commands them, gather yourselves together. Uh, Verse 2, assemble and listen. But back in verse 1, the last line there, why is Jacob wanting them to gather together so that he may look down the corridors of time and tell them what will happen to them? Now, of course, in this, uh, we recognize that uh, there is no way it is humanly impossible to do that. Obviously, Jacob is well aware that the words he's about to speak are the words of the Holy Spirit, the words of God Himself. So as Jacob is communicating with his children, uh, he is not just expressing, as I've said in previous messages, best wishes or happy farewell. That is not what he's up to at all. What he's up to is prophesying. He is is speaking a word uh, to his children from God himself. And as we have seen, uh, he begins with Reuben. That makes perfect sense to us. Who is Reuben. Reuben is his firstborn. Uh, born to Leah, and uh, Simeon and Levi, that makes perfect sense. Judah, these are one, two, three, and four, all sons born to Leah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the, the order gets skipped after that, which is uh, we, we may scratch our heads uh, about that. Uh, he go, He skips Dan, he skips Naphtali, he skips Gad, he skips Asher, And he goes to Zebulun and Issachar, but he reverses the order of Zebulun and Issachar. I still don't know why that is. I I shouldn't trouble over that. It's probably some, I don't know why he does that. Uh, But in essence, what Jacob does is he covers all of the children that are born to Leah first. That's clear. That's very clear. Then he goes to Dan. And last week I tried to bring this out. He goes to Dan. And then Gad, then Asher, then Naphtali. And that is curious. I I think that's a clue as to what exactly is going on there. And I spent a lot of time last week developing that. Dan and Naphtali are blood brothers born to Bilhah, correct? And Gad and Asher are born to Zilpah. Now, these are servants. Bilhah is a servant of Rachel. Uh, Zilpah is a servant of, um, or I'm sorry, Gad and Asher. Is a, it's hard to keep that straight. Gad and Asher are... Sons to Zilpah. Now, I think it's interesting that it starts with Dan and it ends with Naphtali. Why would it do that? Why well, I think that's a clue as to what's going on there. What do these four men have in common? What they have in common is their mothers are servants. And that caused us to delve into the family stuff, you know, the dysfunction that's in this family. And there's massive dysfunction in this family. Family and last week we saw that much of it is the fruits of the polygamy that's taking place here, and we could make some application of that right now, and it's an application I've made in the past. Once in a while, people will object to Christianity, and they'll say this. Maybe maybe you've heard this. Maybe some have objected to you. They say, "How can you love and serve a God that promotes polygamy?" That's a I don't that's a common objection actually. Well, what do we say to that objection? Well, the first thing we say to that objection is that God doesn't promote polygamy. He tolerates polygamy. He tolerated it in the Old Testament. But while we're on the subject of God tolerating things, He actually tolerates lies too. Has anybody ever told any lies? Has anybody ever stolen anything down the list you could go? I think that's a good way to answer that question. While we're thinking about the wrongs of polygamy, well, it's easy to look around and point out the faults of the sins we're not committing. Let's think about the sins we are committing. God is being patient with us. But that having been said, it's kind of scary in our culture. Polygamy is actually gaining, um, uh, what's the word I want to use, it's it's, it's, it's Gaining, I don't want to use the word recognition, acceptance. That would be a good word to use. Pretty scary. I think about 10 years ago, only 5% of the United States accepted polygamy and thought it was okay. I understand that that has risen to around 16% now. But that shouldn't surprise us because in our arrogance, we've been playing games with the institution of marriage. You know, you only have to spend about 10 minutes in your Bible before you come to marriage. And it's woven into the very fabric of the creation account. You know, you get to Genesis 1, that's the account of the creation at large. You get to Genesis 2, and it focuses on the creation of man and his installation in the Garden of Eden. And there, man is created, and God takes him through this little exercise. I share this at weddings. He takes them through this little exercise uh, where uh, God presents all these various creatures to Adam and gives him the privilege of naming them. And this exercise is so Adam will realize that there is no suitable companion. So God seeing that it's not good for man to be alone, actually Adam seeing that it's not good for him to be alone, God knows all things. He causes Adam to fall asleep and he takes a rib from his side and he creates woman and then he presents Eve to Adam. And you come to that beautiful passage in Genesis to where Adam, upon seeing his wife for the first time, says, now this is at last. And, and don't get me wrong, I'll tell you what, I I will conjecture. I really fully believe that Eve was downright beautiful. And she is presented to Adam, and he expresses, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then God says it's, that it's, because of this, man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, singular wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh. And you have this one flesh dynamic. This is Genesis two. Very clearly, God is not promoting polygamy, and we have seen here the the, the, the horrors of polygamy, the the abuses, the oppression, and that whole the, the whole burden of last week was to show you know. The the inferiority, the lines of inferiority and superiority were so strong in this family that it led these brothers to collectively form a coup against Joseph in order to murder him. So obviously in this family, there are these lines of inferiority and superiority, and God is breaking that down. That's the whole point. I think that's the point of Dan going first and Naphtali going last. That's why it's good for us to investigate these things. Sometimes the most powerful messages we we come across in Scripture are the result of these investigations. Now, with all of that having been said, we come to Joseph, and you go to verse 22, and and the first thing I think that stands out to probably most of us is the word fruitful. Joseph is a fruitful bow, says the ESV translation. Some of you with NIVs might say Joseph is a fruitful vine, if I recall. Uh, a vine, a bow, of course, is a branch. I don't think many of us use that word. I don't really hear anybody talking about branches uh, as bows, but mm, come to think of it, I don't hear many of you talking about branches anyway. But, um, but I think if you were going to use the word branch, you or you were thinking about a branch, you'd use the word branch, not bow. But maybe now you'll start using bow. I don't know. It'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Bow. Joseph is a fruitful bow, or he's a fruitful branch. And I think the word that sticks out to us here is obviously fruitful." The second line is really beautiful. He is a fruitful branch or a fruitful bow by a spring. And I, I don't know a whole lot about gardening, but I know, or plants, but I know if you forget the water, the flowers, they don't look so good in a really short period of time. Uh, so uh, here is this imagery where uh, not only do we have this fruitful branch. But the fruitful branch is, is, it's, it's by a spring of water. And this immediately recalls, I think, Psalm 1. I mean, I think we think of Psalm 1. Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or is seat, seated in the scoffer's chair, but on God's law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree which is planted by a stream which yields its fruit in season. Whose leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. You know, that's 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 the imagery that's called to mind. It's actually quite beautiful. And of course, the genre here is poetry, isn't it? It's not narrative, it's poetry. And why poetry? Why poetry? Because poetry is very powerful. Poetry enables us to actually feel this, to sense this. You know, you can almost you you, you get down into this text, you can almost hear birds chirping. You know, we, we look outside. Today and you know it's 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 a beauty. It's there's it's there's sunshine which has been rare lately, and but yet you see the trees and there's no leaves. But here in about a month or so, five six weeks, we're going to start seeing the, the buds. You know, coming on the trees again, and and uh, it's it's going to become beautiful. Um, that's the imagery here. The third line in verse twenty two, his branches run over the wall. One of the things we'll notice there is branches are plural. It's the idea of flourishing. He's flourishing. All of these branches, they're rising up uh, over this wall. Now, that's variously interpreted. I'll give you my take on it. These branches running up over the wall, here they are rising, if you will, rising above the obstacles that are around them. Uh, there are other interpretations of that, but uh, that's 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 my run on that. We come to verse 23, the archers, the archers bitterly attacked him. That is, bitterly attacked Joseph, shot at him and harassed him severely. It's not hard to to recall what this is all about, is it? And we think about Joseph for a moment. This, The family dynamics, the favoritism, the inferiority and superiority that's running in this family uh, has been allowed to become so intensified that there's bitter hatred between the brothers. And they get this opportunity that we're out in the wilderness. They're alone with Joseph, and what do they do? They strip him of his coat, they toss him in a pit, and they seriously deliberate. And they're this close to murdering him. And the deliberations are broken by another cruel suggestion that's given by Judah when he sees a caravan of Ishmaelites come and say, "Hey, let's let's not murder him. Let's sell him to these characters." Let's profit from this. So that's what they do. And and there are those fiery darts, if we might use Paul's language from Ephesians 6. There are the fiery darts. There are the flaming arrows. Joseph is stripped from his family, stripped from the privilege of communion with his father, and sold into slavery. This morning I was meditating on this, and I, I, I just said, Lord, I can't get my mind around this. I just can't get my mind around how horrible this would be. How quickly it happened! As quickly as they could grab him, strip his coat off, and toss him in the pit. The next thing you know, you're in a you're in a traveling jail cell, and your freedom is over. You you don't have no more freedom. He's carried off to Egypt, where he's sold on an auction auction block to Potiphar, who's an officer of Pharaoh. Jacob. Or I'm sorry, Joseph does well with Potiphar. Everything is going pretty well, actually. He really kind of becomes Potiphar's right-hand guy. But then Potiphar's wife takes eyes to him. And first she assails him with the fiery darts of flaming arrows of temptation. I'm going to take a guess about Potiphar's wife, too. I'm going to guess that Potiphar's wife was attractive in her own way, too. I think those temptations were, were bitter tempting him, come on, Joseph, move up the corporate ladder. You don't have to be a slave forever, Joseph. We can make arrangements, Joseph. I'm reading between the lines. Joseph overcomes that and infuriates her, so she falsely accuses him of forcing himself on her, and then he's thrown in jail. I mean, can it get any worse? But then, in a strange turn of events, the Lord... The whole thing is of the Lord, as we well know. We'll say more about that as we get into chapter 50. But Joseph, Joseph in a way, is kind of resurrected out of the pit of the dungeon, isn't he? It's interesting. He is resurrected from the pit of the jail to the right hand of Pharaoh. Like, you can't help but see an allusion to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, can you? Where Jesus is resurrected out of the grave, if you will, out of the tomb, To the right hand, not of Pharaoh, but to the right hand of the Father. And a lot of times we check out after that. We think, all right, after that, it's smooth sailing for Joseph. But I've tried to point out on a couple of occasions, no, those flaming arrows are still being shot at Joseph, just in a different way. They're just new arrows. Man, there's a lot of money in Egypt, and Joseph's in charge of it. Piles of money. Would Pharaoh miss a little bit of this stuff? I doubt it. How could he miss? There's so much money coming in. All the money in the entire area came in. And he's in possession of power. And there he is right in the heart, right in the heart of Egyptian high life. Think about the temptations of all of that. I think we often forget about that. Or we don't even maybe recognize it to begin with. Out of those flaming arrows. The archers, verse 23, they bitterly attacked him. They shot at him and harassed him severely. How did he fare? How did Joseph do? Verse 24, yet his bow remained unmoved. How beautiful and powerful is this poetry? His bow remained unmoved. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, the language begins, it, it, it turns to like military kind of language where an archer, okay, archers are firing darts at him, flaming arrows. And, and here, here is Joseph with a bow as well. Now imagine yourself. You have a bow, and coming straight for you is this either this powerful army with spears and and javelins and horses and chariots, and they're they're barreling down to you. And there you are with your bow, and you're going to protect yourself. And you take aim of your bow. Is your arms going to be steady? Are you going to be shaking? You know, being, being accomplished with if has anyone ever shot a bow, one thing you realize is you've got to have steady hands for that, don't you? You have to have this certain rhythm about it, and you have to have a steady hand. If you're shaking all over the place, you're never going to hit your target. Notice the imagery here. His bow remained unmoved. It's the image of him standing there, not losing his nerve, not losing his, his faculties at all, but being able to stand we're told that his arms were made agile. That is so important. It would be so easy to freeze, wouldn't it? Have you ever been so terrified in an instant that you just froze? I remember playing around in a creek when I was a kid one time. It's the first time it ever happened. I'm playing around in a creek. We were building a dam, and I picked up this rock. And when I picked up this rock, there was a large snake under it. And I remember, like, freezing for what seemed to be like, because, man, I don't, man, I'm, I have nothing against snakes, but, man, I am afraid of snakes, man. I have a phobia with snakes, And there I am, and its head is only like this far from mine. I'm looking at it, and I'm like, it seemed like I was stuck there. I couldn't move. Have you ever had that experience? Yet here, his arms, he's not froze. His arms were made agile. Now, we want to ask ourselves this question. How does Joseph do it? And let me just say right here, because so far in this sermon, it sounds like Joseph is the star of the sermon. He's not the star of the sermon. Joseph is not even the star of the story. The star of the story is the mighty one of Jacob. And if we ask ourselves how he does it, well, there's the answer in verse 24 it's by the hands of the mighty one, Jacob. And that leads to the first point I want to make this morning is that the Lord is the strength of his people. And I, t- I take that point right from Psalm 28, verse 8. It's an easy point for me because it's on my mind all the time. I think about that all the time. Psalm 28, verse 8, Lord, uh, you are our strength. You are the strength of your people. Who is Joseph's strength? How is it How is it that, that Joseph can, can, can remain unmoved and his arms... Uh, be agile in the midst of all of these arrows that are that are been shot at him. How is it that he can do this? The answer, his hands have been made steady by the mighty one of Jacob. Now, let's flesh this out a little further. Because, you know, this military language and, you know, they're actually not shooting arrows at each other, right? Not literally. What, what is actually happening? As I've pointed out in, in previous messages... It would have been very easy for Joseph to have become bitter, would it not? I mean, think about how easy it is for us to become bitter about things that are petty in comparison to this. You know, angry, bitter, chip on the shoulder, you know? But yet, we find Joseph never doing that. He's carted off to Egypt. What does he do? He serves the Lord. In Potiphar's house. What's he do? Okay, this is my new circumstances. He receives it. Receives it as the Lord. Okay, this is what I'm this is the cross I'm to carry. And what does he do? He picks up his cross and he carries it. Doesn't he? How does he do it? The Lord's, his, his strength. You know, the, the world so much teaches us every day, twenty-four hours a day, it's teaching us to, to look inside, look into your heart and find that inner strength. You know, that sounds wonderful, don't it? Until you look in there. What do you find when you look in there? It's all a facade. What strength? We're actually very frail creatures. You know, some of us may be stronger than others, but oftentimes it's been my observation that those who act the toughest are actually the weakest. I think you'll agree with that. Wherein lies the strength of us as God's people? Verse 24, the mighty one of Jacob. We do well not to skip over that quickly. Notice, Jacob is speaking, his dying vocal cords, these words are coming out of his dying vocal cords as he lays on his bed, and he could have just said the mighty one. He could have said, you know, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one. Could have said that. But he didn't say that. He said that Joseph's arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. And that of Jacob is so very, very important. What was Jacob like when we met him way back when, many, many months ago? He was quite a scoundrel, wasn't he? I mean, he stood and lied to his father, his his blind father. He lied right to his face, telling him that he was Esau, stealing his birthright. If he would have just waited on the Lord, he would have received that birthright. It was to be given to him, but he stole it. And then he had to flee out of there. He goes fleeing out of there, up to his uncle Laban's, but God was with him. God meets him on the way and intervenes comforting him, strengthening him. He gets up to Laban's. He meets Rachel. He falls in love with Rachel. He wants to marry her. He agrees to work seven years for her hand in marriage. The seven years go by like a couple of days because he loved her so very, very much. In the morning after his wedding night, he wakes up with with her sister. There's another thing I haven't been able to get my mind wrapped around. But I will say this. We can get our minds wrapped around this. The deceiver done got himself deceived, didn't he? In a big way. And repeatedly. I mean, that's what kept happening to him while he was with Laban. In fact, at one point, what does Jacob say to Laban? You have now cheated me these ten times. But God delivered Jacob from that, didn't he? And then God delivered Jacob from his brother Esau. And then God was with Jacob when he lost the love of his life, Rachel, as she was giving birth to Benjamin. And God was with him when he lost Joseph, thinking that he had lost Joseph forever because he believed that Joseph had been killed by beasts in the wilderness. And then, most recently, God had been with Jacob as he brought him to Egypt. Now, what's the point of all that? The point of all of that is we can have this idea that the Lord is our strength. And I'm not telling probably anyone in this room anything you've never heard before. Yeah, we know that the Lord is our strength. But how often do we lean on our own strength instead? How often do we lean in our own strength? How often do we lean in self-sufficiency? How do we get this lesson? You know, a lot of times we... We, we make a lot of noise about why, why Why do these storms come into our lives? Why do these hardships come into our lives? Why do these, these miserable situations come into our lives? Well, one of the reasons is so the Lord can give us this lesson. There is this tremendous strength that is available to us that oftentimes we don't make use of. We just don't make use of it. Let's just get something straight right now in our minds. Let's get it straight in our minds. These hands of the mighty one that strengthened Joseph are the same hands. If you're in Christ Jesus, they are the same hands that have a hold of you and have a hold of me. They're the same hands. It is the same strength. There's no difference. It's not like God had strength for Joseph that he wouldn't be willing to give to one of us. That's not true. You'll search the Scriptures in vain to to try to prove that point. That's not true. There are these hands. Again, the language is poetic. It's not that the, the Father has hands. We understand it's his power. It's his strength. But it's also his heart his willingness. Look what. Look what is said further. I mean, look, look what's in parentheses right after it. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. How are we to understand that? We, we need to understand that in two ways. One, we need to understand that first for the immediate context. Who is the, who is the shepherd in the immediate context? It's Joseph. God has made Joseph a shepherd to his family. God has put Joseph in this position and he has used Joseph to store up all this grain so when the famine came, Joseph would be available. Joseph would be just in the right place in order to take care of his family. He is the shepherd with a lowercase s. But what is all this pointing for? This is all typical. It's all typifying Christ. Who is the shepherd with the capital S? Many of your translations will have a capital S on shepherd and on stone. How much does God love us? How much does God care about us? How much does God want to see our welfare? How much does God want to prosper us and make us successful? Look at the text. Look what all he goes through. Look what he has given us. In this Old Testament context, they've been given Joseph. Are they satisfied with Joseph? Oh, boy, you better believe they're satisfied with Joseph. Which brings me to my next point that I want to make. The next point that I want to make is that this strength of the Lord's is not strength that is simply available to us so that we can overcome. It is strength that's made available to us so that we can overcome with beauty and grace. Think about Joseph for a moment. He All those darts that are hailed at him, all them arrows that are hailed at him, one after another after another. There is a beauty about Joseph that everybody recognizes. I'm not saying he didn't have enemies. Of course he did. But how many have seen his beauty? Potiphar saw his beauty. Very quickly, Joseph is at the right hand of Potiphar. Why? He's so beautiful. Look at this guy. He's beautiful. And why was he so beautiful? It was because of his integrity and his sincerity. What wonderful integrity. Integrity is one of the most beautiful attributes, by the way. If you, if you like, close your eyes right now and think of somebody you know who you would describe as being someone who is a person of integrity, I can guarantee that you have an image of beauty in your mind. In that exact second that that person comes into your mind, there's a certain beauty about that person, isn't there? It's because integrity is beautiful. And It's gracious. And you see, the strength that's available to God's people isn't just a strength so we can overcome. If Jacob, would have, or Joseph rather, would have just never, never grumbled, never complained, went about his business, put in his time, uh, went back to his sleeping quarters or whatever, he would have overcome. If he would have done it, you know, not to the letter, but also the spirit, he would have overcome. But God takes him further than that, actually. God takes him further than that to where, yes, he's overcoming these darts. He's overcoming these temptations. He's overcoming all of these circumstances. He's actually above it. He's actually above all of it. Because the hands that are underneath him are the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, the mighty one of Abraham, the mighty one of Isaac, the mighty one of Israel. Very God of very God is supporting and sustaining Him and raises Him above all of that. And of course we see that like no other when we look to Christ Jesus, don't we? If we want a snapshot of that, look no further than the passion of Christ. Jesus undergoes a, such an unfair uh, courtroom experience. If there was ever a courtroom experience that was unfair, Jesus, of all people, the only human being who has never committed blasphemy is charged with blasphemy. And he remains silent. When all of these things were being said about you, wouldn't you... Can you imagine how difficult it would be just to remain silent? But he goes from there, and what happens? He goes from there, and he's handed to the guards, you know? What are the guards doing? You know, after they have... They pass him around, and they, they, uh, they put that crown of thorns on his head. And then from there, they flog him. And then they, 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 he's, he's forced to carry his cross as far as he can carry it. And there he's crucified with the pejorative sign. This is king of the Jews. And they're hurling insults at him. He's hanging there. They strip him of his clothes. They're telling him, come down if you're the son of God. Jesus doesn't just overcome. He overcomes with beauty and grace because what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's breathtaking. That's just absolutely breathtaking. That's available, by the way, to you and me. Does anybody want to be successful? Wouldn't it be nice to be successful in this kind of way? How do we succeed? Well, my third point is to succeed in the Lord's strength. We must renounce all self-sufficiency. We have to renounce the self-sufficiency. You know, since we were all, we little, we've been doing something. We've been saying, I do it. I do it. Does anybody recognize that? What do our youngsters do as soon as they're able to move their limbs? I do it. In other words, step aside. I got this one. Step aside, Lord. I got this one self-sufficiency it's 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 youthful immature self-sufficiency and it will keep us from being fruitful in the kingdom of God every time sure we can do it we can do it if we're being suspended by the arms of the Lord but that's a different that's a different thing that's not saying I do it. That's saying, Oh Lord, and your strength enable me to do it. You know, I can stand up here. I'm very confident I can stand up here and, and give talks and teach. I'm confident I can do that in and of my own strength. But you know what's gonna happen if I do that? You may be curious, you may be interested, you may think that, okay, well that that was that was okay. The time kind of passed by, okay. But as you go down those steps, there will be no eternal value whatsoever to that. There will be no eternal fruit. And eternal fruit and eternal value is the only value that I am actually interested in. And one thing I had to learn a long time ago is not to lean on my own strength. And it isn't like I had to get that lesson once or twice. God has a way of showing preachers not to lean in your own strength. He can make you very miserable up here. I can tell you that right now from personal experience. You can be made really miserable when you forget your lines and all kinds of things go by. I could tell you some stories, but I won't. Maybe privately. Uh, No. There's strength that's available to us, not just in preaching and teaching, not just in personal witness but at the workplace and difficult situations or in family life. Some of us, our most difficult situations are actually in our family life. Some of us, our most difficult situations might even be in our married life. We need to, you know, first, first when, I, when I counsel people, and especially when I counsel marital difficulties, the very first thing I'm interested in knowing is, Whose strength are you leaning on here? And what what are you doing? What are you doing for yourself spiritually? You know, once in a while, I get phone calls from people, and they want they want me to counsel them. And 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 if they're not committed to a church, they're not committed to Jesus. They're not committed to doing the things that they need to do. I'm not going to counsel you for very long because I don't have time to. There's all kinds of secular counselors out there you could go see. If that's, if you just want to put a Band-Aid on your problems, go ahead. I'm not interested in a Band-Aid. I'm not interested in anything that's short of eternal value. I'm not going to be part of putting a Band-Aid on you. I just don't have time for it, and I'm not interested in it. There's no reason for it. We cannot control what another person can do, but we can control what we do. Joseph couldn't control what people were going to do. He couldn't control when those archers were going to fire at him. But because he was in the strength of the Lord and he was in the hands of the Lord, he was always held up above that, wasn't he? And the message here isn't go be like Joseph. If it sounds that way, I apologize, but that's not the message. If we preach preach this text and we say, well, this is Joseph, and Joseph does this, 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 and this, and therefore go be like Joseph, well, we didn't understand the text. It's not go be like Joseph. Joseph. It's go plunge your hand, your your whole being in the hands of Almighty God. Submit yourself to the King of Israel, Christ Jesus himself. We can't do this. We We could take Jesus' counsel, which is always wise to do. Would it ever be unwise to take Jesus' counsel? It's always wise to take Jesus' counsel. And he puts it so wonderfully. He says, I am the vine. And this is this is he's speaking to his to believers here. This isn't to all people. This is this is to believers. I am the vine; you are the branches. And while you're abiding in me, and I'm abiding in you, you will be fruitful. But apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the negative right? What's the positive? The positive is in Christ Jesus. We can not only overcome, listen, we can not only overcome, but we can actually overcome in beauty and grace. And that's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for myself and my prayer for you is that we wouldn't be out there as we disband from here and we go out into the community, that we wouldn't just be simply overcoming temptation, overcoming sin, overcoming all of these difficulties, overcoming uh, discontent and miserable situations. We wouldn't just be overcoming, but that we would be overcoming in such a way that it is beautiful and it is gracious and therefore it is attractive. This person is different. There's something different about this person. What is it? What is different about her? What is different about him? What's different is they're reflecting something that's far greater. They're reflecting Christ. How many want to be successful? My guess is that you all want to be successful. I I, I want you to be successful too. But here's the thing. Listen. The, the Lord does as well. See, that's the beautiful thing. I think we can approach God all too often thinking, well, maybe the Lord doesn't want us to be successful. Perish that thought. You don't think he wants to be successful? I'm not trying to preach that nonsense out there that, you know, send 50 bucks to a certain address and God will make you successful. You know me better than that. No. What I'm trying to take you to is the very heart of God. Do you think God wants you to succeed? Do you want your children to succeed? Do you want your children to be successful? Do you think God wants us to be failures? My heavens, no. He wants us to succeed in him. And he has given us the strength not only to overcome, but to overcome in beauty and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so thank you for your heart, we thank you for your power. We thank you, O oh Lord, for your your strength. But we thank you, O oh Father, for your heart. That O oh Lord, you're just so amazing. You 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 have you have intentions of doing us good that we just don't even understand nor do we get. But Father, we look to you and we pray that in your strength we will get it. And oh Father, we pray that you would be pleased, O oh Lord, to show us your strength, O oh Lord. Show us your strength. Show us afresh this morning that you are the strength of your people. Empower us, O Father, to overcome these fiery arrows that that fly from the world and the flesh and the evil one, arrows that we even shoot at ourselves, O Lord. Empower us to overcome sluggish hearts and vices and indifference to you and others. Empower us to overcome, not just to overcome, but to overcome with beauty and grace. Father, we look to you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.